And the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look this morning. I know uh, many of us are still coming off of a, uh, the post-holiday slump, still trying to, to wake up uh, from the holidays that have been passed. But uh, in God's providence, we come this morning to a text where, where Jesus is still in the middle of the holiday season. But of course, uh, Jesus wasn't celebrating Christmas. It was a little too early for that. Jesus was there at the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah. And so we will join uh, with his disciples as we hear just what happens there. Join me if you have your Bibles in John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, or you can find it printed in your bulletin with you. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah as we know it now, took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are, my, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And so many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we come to this ancient text, this ancient account of your movements and your words, the way that you confronted and and spoke to the people that gathered around you, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would attend to us this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see you as you are, to see you in what you are doing in our world, to see you in the hope that can be found only in you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the crowd that gathered around him, in their mind's eye, they, they saw a figure, a man. It was impossible to go to Uh, the celebration of Hanukkah, to gather at the lighting of the candles and not have the figure of Judah, the hammer Maccabee in your brain. 
He was a, a, a man who lived in Israel at a time that was very dire and, and a time that was very slow. The prophets of the Old Testament had ceased to speak for several hundred years, and instead, Alexander the Great brought his troops through, and, and the Greek uh, the Greek Empire had spread into their midst, and after his death, there was uh, contention and, and there was division among his generals, and there in the middle were these Jews, Jews who, who lived in a time and a place when to be Jewish was a deadly serious predicament. The Greeks came uh, to, to, to stomp them out. The Greeks came to eliminate this idea of Jewish thought, of Jewish worship, and putting a, uh, a statue of Zeus in the temple and, and slaughtering a pig on the altar of God. The people of God, the priests, were placed in an impossible predicament. But there in that time and in that moment, God raised up a priest, a priest who rebelled and refused to, to sacrifice to the pagan gods, a priest who hid in the woods, but it was a priest's son, a son by the name of Judah. Judah was the one who would take up his arms against the Greeks. It was Judah who would gather the exiles hiding in the hills, and he who took them to the battlefield. It was he who, who rallied the troops as Apollonius the governor from, from Syria, Samaria comes down with 2,000 men to stomp them out. And it was Judah who said, God will prevail. Hiding in the desert, hiding in the, in the ravine, they waited their, their unsuspecting army to approach. And there they sprung. And there they slaughtered 2,000 soldiers. Judah taking up the, 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 the very sword of Apollonius. To a Jew living in first century Palestine, the image of Judah, who got the nickname the hammer, stood large in their mind's eye. Judah, who with the sword of Apollonius stood in defiance of a great empire. Apollo, Judah, who enters into the temple, tearing down the Greek gods and setting up a purification ritual, a ritual a celebration with the lighting of candles that the worship of God could be made known in Israel again. Their mind's eye held a man strong. Um, their mind's eye held a man with a sword. Their mind's eye saw one whom God used to bring a great salvation. But in their eyes of what was right in front of them, in the eyes of who they could see, they saw uh, a, a rabbi, a man with no sword, a man with no army. He was a man with, with no pretension. And in fact, at every moment when, when the, 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 the moment came for him to rally the, the armies, for the moment came when he could rally the crowds to, to fight back against their Roman oppressors, Jesus simply disappeared. He ran away. He literally ran away every time when there was a moment when they could have taken back their political strength. They could have set themselves apart. They could have shown what made them so powerful. And so they didn't need to assume much to know that this Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. 
This Jesus who stood in front of them couldn't possibly be the Christ. And so when they come to him and they ask him, are you the Christ? Their words are not a, an, an invitation uh, that they might know, but it is a, a, to put Jesus on trial. It is to gain his confession. It is to, to gain his self-conception that they might put him in his place, that they might discard him. And yet, here on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus in a way that only Jesus could, takes those who come to put him on trial and he turns this flip. He turns the script. He turns to them and he asks them, are you sure that these assumptions you've made about God are right? Are you sure that these assumptions that you've made about God's world, are you sure that these assumptions that you've made about me are right? Because in me is life. And so Jesus brings to these, these, this crowd of people, a crowd with unwitting assumptions about the way God worked and about the way that the, the world worked in their brains. And he challenges them one by one that he might dismantle those assumptions, that they may gain the eyes of the epiphany, that they might see who he really was. And so he challenges them in at least three ways. And the first is that he challenges their assumption of their standing with God. You see in the text that Jesus, immediately upon receiving the question, uh, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. That Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And Jesus goes on and he tells them this beautiful vision, these most encouraging words of, of peace, of prosperity, of security, the kinds of things that Judas Maccabee would have loved to have seen realized. The promise that the power of the Maccabean revolt had that there would be a time when they could, as the Jewish imagination longed for, that they would be sheep that grazed by a good shepherd, that they would be safe from the threats around them, that they would be safe and at home to prosper and live. But Jesus tells them these sweet, great things, but he tells them something else. You're not a part. But you, in verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You have the name of the sheep. You have the name of an Israelite. You have the name of the people of God. You have the, 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 the appearance, right? You look like a sheep. You smell like a sheep. You hang out at the temple with the sheep. But yet there's something in you that you don't know the shepherd's voice, even though you call on the shepherd's name for yourself. There's something in you that while you assume that you know God and that God knows you, that is simply not the case. That you are without a flock. That you are outside of God's family. Outside of God's shepherd. Shepherding care. But Jesus write these words, and they are hard words that he says to these people. And I imagine as you're sitting here today, they sound like hard words. For some of you, this is your greatest fear. It's the God who says, I depart from me, for I have never known you. But you see, this, this taking of a name is not a passive 
action. And this taking of a name is not something that happens by accident. It happens when people desire the name of God more than they want the life of God. You see, one of the easiest ways to miss the Christ, to miss the Messiah, to miss the hope of the world is to assume that you already have it. To assume that because you were born into a Christian family, because you have come to church on on whatever repeated schedule, that because you have hung around the flock of God, that you have somehow magically become one of the flock of God. But when push comes to shove, that's not the life that you desire. You don't want to be too serious about God. You don't have the actions or or changes or life, you've never really called for God to forgive you for sin. You're not able to wrestle with God's call on you because you haven't heard it. Because the good life, the life that you desire to live, the life that you dream of has nothing to do with God. He's just there as a security blanket. It's a ridiculous uh, 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 place to be in, but it's a place that our hearts go in all the time. All right, to show you how ridiculous it is, uh, you know, you, to think of, of, of taking on a name, and some of you have mixed feelings about the people who gave you the name that you have, right? But for me, uh, right, my, my last name is, is Winkler, right? My last name is Winkler because it was uh, given to me by my father. He gave me a lot of things, right? He gave me a, a scrawny, tall, awkward-shaped body, right? He gave me a receding hairline, right? He gave me these great big, uh, you know, dish, dish network reception satellites on the side of my head, right? He also uh, gave me uh, an undying proclamation that I love you. He gave me steaks after steaks that he cooked on the grill. He, he gave me his, his presence and his love of basketball. He gave me uh, the, the, the sound of his laughter in the back of my head. He gave me that feeling of security of his hand being on my shoulder as he prayed for me. You see, many of us come to Christ and we treat the invitation of God to come and to be a part of his people. And we, we say, God, we'll, we'll take your name. We'll take these wonky genetics and, and we'll associate with them. But we don't want any of life with you. We don't want to taste the, the, the delight of your cooking. We don't want to live in, in what you think is beautiful. We don't want to experience the, the hand of security on our back. We want to go our own way. We just want to do it with some weird ears on our head. It's an absurd thing. It's a claim that none of us would consciously make, I don't think. But it's a claim that is real in our lives often. You see, God calls us to come and to follow. And yet somehow we're more interested and going our own way. They're interested in the name of God, but not the life of God. But Jesus does not end his challenge there by simply saying, you are not of the sheep, not of the invitation, the implied uh, desire for them to come and to join him. He continues to challenge their assumption, their unwitting assumption that they know 
what God is doing in the world. You see, things in the story fall apart rather quickly, don't they? Jesus has, has said and he's laid out this beautiful promise, this beautiful idea that they could be safe and secure, that they could experience a peace that, that the Maccabeans only dreamed about. And yet he says here at the end this line, this line that picked a scab in this Jewish imagination and set the, the, the conversation on fire. Jesus says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And you can immediately see the response, right? The Jews bend down to pick up their stones. The Jews pick up the stones because they know what it is that their job is. They're on Hanukkah of all days. They know it is their duty to pick up the Maccabean sword and to pick up the Maccabean mantle to defend and fight for God's honor of his holiness and his distinctiveness. To say, no, 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 no. The, the, the Shema, the, the Deuteronomy 6.4 says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, not I and the Lord are one. And so they come with vigor and they come with passion and they come ready to defend the name of God against any who would uh, accuse them otherwise. But Jesus says to them, are you sure that's what you're doing? Are you sure that what you... That, that you are really trying to defend the holiness and the honor of God's name, or are you defending something else? Are you sure you know what you're talking about? He presses them, right? For which of my good works are you going to stone me? And their reply is, no, it's not because of your works. It's because of what you said. You said that you were the son of God. And so Jesus responds in this kind of uh, cryptic allusion to, to an, a, a psalm in the Old Testament, the Psalm 82, where, where the, the psalmist recounts the words of God as he looks upon humans, mere humans, mere humans who have received the law. And he says to them, as Jesus says, I said, you are God's. It feels like, for modern readers, it feels like a weird, twisty roller coaster, right? Like, what on earth does this have to do with anything? But as always, Jesus is pointing to something much greater in his question. In his question, he says, are you sure that this is what God wants you to do? Because don't you remember that God's design for the human life, God's design for what life in this world is look like, his design for what is the holiness and the distinctiveness of Israel is not found in a name as much as it is in the people. Psalm 82 is, a, is filled with the, the condemnation of the leaders of Israel over their lack of holiness, their lack of distinctiveness. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. See, Jesus is saying, if God could, could look at humans and say, if you are operating in the way that I designed for you, if you have heard the words of the law that I gave you, you would be as a God, united in purpose with God the Father, united in strength, with God the Father, united in mission and work. That is the holiness of God. Jesus says, if that's true of mere humans, how much more? 
How much more is God's distinctiveness, his holiness, his set-apartness, when he says, comes to the Son and says, you are to go into the world, you are to bring the mission of God to the people, you are to be what is set apart. Jesus is challenging them, is it really God's holiness that's the problem? Because it can't be. It can't be because God's holiness is what sent Jesus to begin with. That his people would see the flourishing of this world, that the, the works of God's kingdom, the truth proclaimed to the poor, the healing of the sick, the weak and the needy are fed and cared for. These are the things which set apart God's people. No, no, the Israel's desire to, to, to stone Jesus for declaring himself to be of one substance with the Father, of one mission, of one mindset, of one action, comes not because they wanted to defend God's holiness, but because they wanted to defend themselves. You see, the Jews' relationship with, with God gave them the feeling that they were superior. Right? The, the feeling and the story of the Maccabees is not just a story which has been embraced because it, it tells of a great salvation. It's been embraced because it tells of a story that they are better than others. That the holiness of God, the uniqueness of God, the set-apartness of God makes them feel like they are right. Because there's no better way to feel right, is there, than to say, God's on my side? Is there any better way uh, to think uh, of life than to say uh, God is the ultimate self-validation, right? To, to think that God exists in some way, an assumption that is made in our hearts and our minds that somehow the, this codependent relationship with God, I praise God and God takes care of me, that I worship God and, and God in turn fuels my need for for identity and fuels my need that I am right in the world. See, Jesus comes into to a world that longs for a political Messiah to take political action in the world, and Jesus, as he comes and he starts to set the world right, has nothing to do with their assumed what they assumed God would be doing in the world. But instead, God is going about a very different task altogether than reaffirming their tribal instincts. God is taking their tribal instincts and turning them on their head. But he says this to these people because one of the easiest ways, one of the easiest ways to miss God, to not recognize who Jesus is, is to assume that Jesus is just your tribal's, your, your tribe's patron deity. To assume that God is always on your side rather than asking is God changing me to be on his side? He doesn't just challenge, though, their, uh, their understanding of, of their relationship with God. And he doesn't just challenge their assumption that uh, they knew what God was doing in the world. But he challenges their conception of who God was himself. Jesus, when he says, I and the Father are one, it's this... A phrase that could be unpacked and, and illuminated in a million different ways, but it is, uh, it's a unique one. It's a unique one because it, it, the, that one, and you can't see it in the English, but when he says, I and the Father are one, Greek is a, a 
gendered language, right? So every word, every noun has a, a masculine, a feminine, or it has a neuter. A masculine, feminine, obviously on, on, a, a, on a word that's describing a person, right, would have the gender of the person, right? So uh, when, when God says, I am the Lord your God, the Lord is one, in the, in the Greek translation of that, it's a masculine thing. It is his personhood that's on stage here. But Jesus uses a different phrase. He says, I and the Father are one neuter. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We're united. We're in one substance, one, one line of thinking, one line of work. But he does not say, uh, Jesus, God and I are the exact same. You see, the Christian teachings of the world have always been that God exists as a trinity, that God exists as a Godhead. And if you're like me, this is like one of those like wacky things to try and conceive of. It's a wacky thing to try and wrap your brain around. And in fact, if I'm being honest, it's one of those things that I'd almost rather it like wasn't true, right? Like it would make my way of explaining it a lot easier, right? If there was one God and he existed in one person, then there's a, a simpleness. There's a, a flatness to that that I could, could get away with. But Jesus here is highlighting this particular fact that the, he and God are exactly the same, but they're different people. There's three persons, one substance. They are doing, they're working within each other to bring about this thing. Father is in me, and I am in the Father, he says. But Jesus does not bring up this weird uh, fact to, to make a, a, a footnote in a systematic theology textbook. He doesn't tell us that he and the Father are existing in, in this co inheritance relationship so that we can uh, muse about the ontological existence of God. He tells us this because it drives home a purpose. He tells us that he is the incarnate God because in Jesus we see who God is. The Jewish conception of God has always been the God who is with us, but he was always with us through proxy through uh, emissaries, right? It was through the sending of prophets. It was through the, the, the sending of kings. God was with us through uh, the deliverance of his people from Egypt, and he was with them uh, through their establishment of a kingdom. He was with them in all these different ways of being, but there was something that these people did not know would happen. They assumed that life would go on forever, that life would be that God would, would always deal with them at a distance, that he would always deal with them through a third party, that he would always deal with them somehow removed from the step because God is spirit. But Jesus is saying, and you notice if you've read this, how many times does Jesus say, look at my works, look what I'm doing? He says over and over and over again. It says in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, that's what you should see about me. He says it in verse 32, and then again here in verses 37 through 38, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do them, even if, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. See, the incarnation, this mystery that Jesus, this baby, is actually God. 
that he is the son of God, that he is the second member of the Trinity, tells us that God is not a distant God. He's not a God who sits far away and sends proxies and emissaries our way. He is a God who is so committed to the works of this world, to the redemption of these people, to the redemption of this place. The God took on flesh that he could be God with us, with us. That he could be God with us, with the flesh that we have. That he could be God with us, with the, the, uh, the full presence of the spirit of God, but in the full presence of a human body. In his brokenness and its frailty. You see, one of the ways that we assume God works is that God is somehow so spiritual and so different and so removed from our day-to-day lives that it's almost like he's, he's the ultimate reality, but he has nothing to do with our time and place, right? He's the ultimate reality, but he has nothing to do with our present reality. When Jesus reveals to these people that he is indeed God, he does not point to this trick, neat little like logical trick. He doesn't point them to some philosophical discussion. He says, I am God with boots on my feet. I am God who brings healing to the sick. I am God who speaks to the people the truth of God. See, so often we uh, distance ourselves and we find ways to comfort ourselves that, that we uh, can take God's name but not his heart, that we can take his name but not his life because we think of God as being just so spiritual that it's otherworldly, that business can be business and God can be God, that family can be family and, and God can be God. It's a, it's a separation, it's a distinction, it's a... It is a, a way of living in the world that, that separates us from a God who has demanded our attention because he came into our time. He came into our place that he might disrupt us, that he might disrupt the ways that we think of the world, the ways that we, whether we know it or not, through our assumptions, are hiding from God. He came that he could disrupt our assumptions so that we might know him. The story in this text ends uh, with what seems to be a, a, an almost strange add-on, right? In verse 40, it says, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Jesus comes to those who are the most educated, who, those who, who are most confident in their assumptions about the world, and he says, you have missed the boat. You don't even know the voice of your father. But to these people, these largely uneducated crowd, Jesus comes and he says to those who have dared to listen to the word of the prophet, who have dared to listen and believe it is them that are able to see Jesus as he is, it is to them that they are able to see the divine hand of God. Because it's not advanced learning. It's not this life of track record that you can point to and say, I am surely now a flock of God. It is a simple belief that the common man can look at and say, you know what, Jesus? 
you really are doing the things that God said he would do. You know what, Jesus? You are really bringing the life that you offer to these people. You know what, Jesus? My life cannot be the same because I've seen you face to face. We come here this morning, and, and I, I, I hope you're aware of the assumptions in your brain. The assumptions in your brain that God is, is somehow distant, that God is somehow not familiar with what is the real world. The assumptions that, that say, uh, you know what, uh, I'm probably already okay with God. The assumptions that say, you know what, I don't think God really cares about this or that. God just really wants me to be a, a good person. God wants to come and live in relationship with you, in your house, in your work, in your car, in your church, as he changes us into his likeness, as he leads us not towards uh, a belief, uh, uh, some uh, obscure confession, but instead into a life that mimics his kingdom and the world to come. We don't need to assume about God because in Jesus, we've seen the face of God. We don't need to assume about what God is doing and what God cares about and what God's up to in the world because we have seen the life of Jesus. We don't need to assume that we are on God's side because we are hearing the voice of our good shepherd as he leads us. And according to Jesus, he will never, ever let us out of his, the palm of his hand. Pray with me. God, we come this morning as people who need to hear from you, as people who need to be beckoned and welcomed, as people who need to be invited to see that you came to bring life and to transform us. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would soften our hearts to see and to know, to come to you with empty hands and not our assumptions, to come to you and be given life, eternal life abundant life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.